Hello. <clears throat> Sorry. My name's Anna Frazier. My husband, Andrew, and I have been members here since, well, he was little, but um, I started coming when I was in college. We have an almost three-year-old named Brooks and another boy on the way, and we're very excited about that. And, of course, I had everything written down that I wanted to say on my phone, which is way over there. But um, usually when people are up here, they mention where they're serving in the church as part of a way to remind people that it's not just the elders that are up here that are involved, but instead I would like to thank a few specific people who have served in ways that minister to my family and the people that I love. So um, thank you, Mr. Tom Thomas. He's one of our elders here. He's also my husband's boss <laughs> and a great boss, <laughs> um, but I'm very appreciative of the encouragement and mentorship that he has given Andrew over the years. Um, I'm also very grateful for Jeremy and Deidre Nunnally. My almost three-year-old says he doesn't say he can't wait to go to church. He says, I can't wait to go see Mr. Jeremy every Sunday because he loves their Sunday school class so much. He's only two, but he is planting seeds of the gospel in my two-year-old. Uh, and I appreciate that as a mom. Um, I'm thankful for Andrew Mattingly, who teaches my in-laws' Sunday school class. I know my father-in-law can ask some tough questions sometimes, and Andrew will answer them. <laughs> uh, I'm thankful for his sound and consistent teaching to the best in-laws on the planet. His wife, Lindsay, was my Bible study teacher when I was in college several years ago. Um, and she was the first young adult that I saw walk with Jesus regularly um, at that time in my life. Tim Robles was mine and Andrew's college pastor, taught us how to study scripture contextually, deeply. These are just a few people that are here that have ministered to my family and are making disciples here. They all have jobs outside of the church. I'm sure they all have sins and weaknesses and struggles. They're not perfect, but they've found a spot to serve or have served, and it is, they are in the process of making disciples of my family and the people that I love, and I'm very appreciative of that. So, um, what passage am I supposed to read? That, that, yeah, I was waiting for that. Okay, Mark 13, 1 through 23. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but it, the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, 
for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders and lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know specifically what I've struggled with even this morning before church and at church. Um, you know each of our sins. You know where we have fallen short, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for members of the body who are walking alongside of us to minister to our families. And uh, I pray, Lord, that you would speak through Lucas this morning, God, and that you would give us each focused minds um, and open hearts to hear specifically what you would like us to learn from your word today. In Jesus' name that I ask these things. Amen. Hearing those testimonies of just how the Lord uses his people to minister to the church. If you're new here at uh, South Street, you'll find that we preach through books of the Bible. And currently we're preaching through the book of Mark. Our, uh, we have a teaching pastor, his name's Drew, and he and his wife uh, went to the game last night over in Alabama, and so it gives me an opportunity to preach and them an opportunity to, to take a break. So thankful uh, for that opportunity. So one of the reasons that we preach through books of the Bible is because it helps us to cover the entire counsel of God, right? It keeps us from preaching kind of reactively, from kind of picking the easy passages and neglecting the difficult ones. In fact, I told Drew this week, I said, man, only thing I can find common in all these commentaries that I've read is that this is the most difficult passage in the book of Mark. So I appreciate that. But then later I thanked him. I said, man, I've really had a good time uh, studying this. So uh, we're kind of right in the middle of Holy Week, the week leading up to the cross uh, in the book of Mark. And so this passage falls on Wednesday. One of the disciples 
looks to Jesus and he points back to the temple and he says, look how beautiful. And Jesus says, it won't be there very long. And they're like, wow, they sense some change is coming already, right? And what happens when change comes? We kind of get a little anxious. What's it going to look like? When's it going to happen? And so they ask Jesus, what's it going to look like? When's it going to happen? And in his response, I'll paraphrase and then we'll look into the details, but he basically says, it's going to get tough on you. And it's going to get a little tougher. And then the Antichrist is going to come. And it's going to get unbearable. And the people in Judea are going to have to flee. And then next week's passages we'll see where he will come back and the end of time will finish up, not finish up, but get, get further along, we might say. And so I want to share just to start with just a little bit of context. So the disciples, they know that change is coming. They have some questions. The cross will be coming in a couple of days, right? Jesus will be crucified. But in the midst of this, prophecy is being fulfilled, and this giant change is taking place in the course of all of history. And that change is that this new covenant is being instituted. This new covenant of grace. This new covenant that was ratified by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So everything that the disciples knew, that the people in Jerusalem knew, that the world knew for thousands of years centered around this temple. And now that was changing. And Jesus is trying to show this to his disciples in this particular passage. And so I think it's important that we understand the magnitude of change that is taking place during this time. I want to share a couple of verses from Luke and Matthew's account that will shed a little more light on this particular passage before we really dig a little deeper. So in Luke's account, in uh, chapter 21, there's a couple of verses I want to read and they'll be on the screen for you. Verses 13 through 15 say, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Sell it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I'll give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Verses 17 and 18. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And then in Matthew chapter 24, there's a couple of verses, uh, verses 27 and 28 that are helpful. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I share those verses because uh, Mark's account doesn't really take those things, or they don't really testify to those things, and I think it helps shed a little light on what Jesus is saying. Now, as we think about this passage this morning, we ha I want us to zoom all the way out 
And think about it in light of all of eternity. Because in Jesus' response here, all of eternity is involved. This isn't just a, a moment in time that he's responded to their question. He's taken into account literally eternity in both directions. And sometimes we don't really think like that. It's hard for us to think like that. So I want to show you a chart. And uh, ironically, this is probably our, uh, it's a Clarence Larkin's Mountain Peaks of Prophecy chart. And uh, this is probably our most used tool in our elder meeting. As crazy as that must sound, because we've been studying Isaiah and stuff, but when the prophets, when the Lord gave the prophets a vision, uh, Clarence Larkin developed this little chart to help us understand what they saw. And he calls it the mountain peaks of prophecy. So if you think about the Old Tef Testament prophets, when they saw forward, they, they saw what's on top of the mountains. It may be hard for you to read, but that first mountain is Calvary, right? The cross, Isaiah 53 and such. When the when Old Testament saw Whenever they were given a vision, it was just those mountain peaks. It wasn't what was in between. It wasn't all the details. It was just kind of those high points. And then beyond that, they saw kind of the end of time, right? You see that Olivet, Zechariah 4 and 14, the son of righteousness. A lot of Daniel's prophecy, right? They, they, they kind of, that's what he saw. The cross and the end of time and even a little bit beyond that, what it looked like for eternity. So, we don't typically think like that, but I, I just want to ask us today as we zoom all the way out on Jesus' response here, thinking about eternity in both directions, think about those high points. Now, a lot of people will take this passage, matter of fact, many people are preaching on Mark 13 this week, but it's because there's a, a war going on between Israel and Palestine right now. And so it's kind of a reaction to that, and they take that in light of prophecy and try to figure out where at on the calendar that we are but we know especially after going through the book of mark like this this passage isn't about the calendar it's about the christ the whole book is about the christ the whole book of mark the whole all 62 books or 66 books of the bible right are about christ and so I don't want us to miss that. Sometimes when we talk about end times prophecy, man, we can really get bogged down and try to figure out, all right, is the Lord waiting on one more missile to go from Palestine to Israel before he starts to blow the trumpet? That's just not the case. In this passage, we do get an idea of some things that will take place, but really it gives us hope in Christ Jesus. And I want us to see that in this passage. And for us to do that, I want to give just a little bit of history on two things. One, on the temple, a little bit of history and a little bit of prophecy. And then also on the end times. So verses 1 and 2 in Mark 13 says, He came out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left Hear one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So they're proud of the temple, right? It's glorious. It was a man-made wonder of the world at this time. But literally for thousands of, year, of years, the temple was the center of everything. Everything. Not just their worship, not just their sacrifices, not just the priest's duties. Everything. 
It was a center for business. It was, a, it was where they held court, right? It was a center for their judicial system. It was a center politically. And it was glorious. Like to look at it, it was something spectacular. This particular temple uh, was originally built by Zerubbabel, and then Herod kind of came along and, and revamped it, but it was 35 acres of glory, right? Giant, tens of thousands of square feet, marble and gold. Just the, the most glorious building and place you could ever imagine. And so it was vital to everything they believed, everything they did, who they were. And now Jesus says, look at his response. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So that's got to kind of throw them into a tailspin, right? What in the world? When's this going to happen? What's this going to look like? But let's trace that temple. I want to trace it kind of going backwards in time, and then we'll go forward in time. So if we start at this very day where Jesus is responding, uh, we back up to like John 1, 1, right? Or John chapter 1, 14. Said the word became flesh and tabernacled among men. So Jesus was literally the word that became a tabernacle or a temple, if you will, and came to earth and dwelt among men. The temple is where people, God's people, met with him. So the temple left heaven, his name was Jesus, and he came to earth, the Son of God, and dwelled among men. Okay, so Jesus is the temple that has come. Then you back up to like, I've got some dates here, but uh, you back up to Herod's temple, which was originally built by Zerubbabel around 520 B.C. Herod kind of revamped it about 20 B.C. And that's where it was in this very moment of time. Now, the reason that Zerubbabel rebuilt that temple was because the first temple that was built by Solomon was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians before that. So if you go back to like 2 Chronicles 7, we see where Solomon built the temple. And I'm going to read a couple of verses here in 2 Chronicles 7, the, uh, 1 through 3, and they'll be on the screen for you. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, this is after they built this temple, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down, the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So the Lord instructed them to build a temple. David's son Solomon built it prayed and God literally the the fire from heaven fell the glory of God filled that temple in such a way the priest couldn't even go in God inhabited that place but over time those people began to turn their backs on God and so if we look at like Ezekiel 8 we'll read a couple of verses from there We'll see why that temple was destroyed. Verses 16 through 18. And he brought me into the inner court. Now this is the Lord giving Ezekiel a, a vision. He brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, 
were about 25 men. Now, these 25 men were the 24 order of priests from Aaron and the high priest. So these were all priests, 25 men in the temple, and look at what they're doing. With their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. And he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here? The priests literally turned their backs on God and started worshiping the sun. And a, a lot of these kind of prophecies are directed at the leaders of God's people. And these men turned their back, and so eventually God turns his people over to Babylon, and that temple, about 400 years after it was built, was destroyed and burned to the ground. All right, so we, if we start at Herod's temple, we go back, we see Jesus comes and tabernacles among us. We go back, we see Herod revamped that about 20 B.C. We see Zerubbabel had originally built it because it had been destroyed by the Babylonians, the first one that Solomon built. So we're kind of going all the way back to where Solomon was. But before Solomon, God still met with his people. And they had the, the tent, right? The tent of meeting where there was this pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night over this tent where the ark was to see where God would literally come and be with his people, where God dwelled among his people. Before that was the altar. First mention of the altar we have in Genesis chapter 8, where when Noah and his family were saved, they responded to that salvation by worship. They built an altar to the Lord. So that was kind of the original meeting place, right? Was the altar that was built unto the Lord. Now, in Exodus chapter 20, where we find the Ten Commandments, after the, he gave those Ten Commandments, he instructed them to build an, off, an altar. And there are some really neat instructions that he gives here. Starting in verse 24 of Exodus 20, he says, An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. He said, when you build an altar, don't touch the stones. Don't hew the stones. Don't shape them. Don't put your tool on them. You take them just like I've given to you, and you build an altar. I'm getting excited now. So, take that and compare it to what the disciples are saying to Jesus in Mark 13. They're not saying, God, look what you did at this beautiful temple. No. They're saying, look at what man has done. Now, I'm going to cheat a little bit because I want to show you something in Daniel chapter 2. Now, this is 
end times prophecy, but I'm going to get ahead of myself for just a second. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 says, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were, in broken, were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Let's skip down to verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Now, Daniel's vision, as he looked, was a stone cut out by no human hand. And it struck this image that God had shown Daniel that would paint a picture of the coming kingdoms. But in the end, there was a stone that was not hewn by hand that would destroy them and reign forever. And his name is Jesus. He's the rock. He's not fashioned by the hands of men. He's a gift from God who's come. Now, that's, that's going backwards. Seeing what the temple has looked like up until this point. But now we're going to go forward. What does it look like moving forth? First thing we know that is in A.D. 70, the Roman emperor Titus destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and it was, just, I mean, it was eliminated, right? Exactly what Jesus said would happen, happened in A.D. 70, 40 years after he said it. That temple was destroyed. Also, on the day of Pentecost... The Holy Spirit came and dwelled in God's people. And you know what it looked like? It looked a lot like it did in 2 Chronicles 7 when the fire from heaven fell and filled the temple. The Spirit, like fire, like tongues of fire, fell on the people of God. And the Holy Spirit came and filled God's people. They, we, became the temple of the living God. I'll give you a couple of verses to support that. First one is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So we are the temple, but guess what? God's desire for that temple is the same for us as it was for any other place he's ever dwelled. That it would be a place of worship and sacrifice 
and forgiveness, atonement, glory. Now, it's under the covenant of grace, through the work of Christ, our great high priest. Second Corinthians also has a reference that I'll share with you. It's chapter 6. Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. 1 Peter 2.5, I don't have it on the screen, but it basically says that we are living stones, right? God creates us as living stones and builds us together as this kind of a priesthood. Then, there will be another temple built. We're going to talk about the abomination of desolation a little bit. He's standing in a temple, right? There will be another temple bit. Built And then, beyond that, Revelation chapter 7, we read, starting in verse 15, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe, wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then lastly, that last uh, and final feast is that Feast of Tabernacles, which is a picture of us literally dwelling with God for all of eternity. Revelation 21, verse 22 and 23, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. In the end, this is, this is the very end, the way it will be forever, no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord. God Almighty and the Lamb. All right, so that's, that's kind of a look at... That's, the, the reason I wanted to explain all of this is because there's a lot behind the temple and there's a lot in front of the temple. And I think we need to consider all of that in Jesus' response. Secondly, there are some end-time events that we need to understand. Jesus' response was more of an end-time response. And so, if we keep in mind like those mountain peaks of prophecy, like I showed you on that chart, there's a few things that we see that are coming. We don't know all the details in between, and it's not for us to know. But there are some things that we know, and so... We'll just kind of have end times 101, right? A lot of confusion. A lot of people have, are teaching a lot of false things about end times prophecy and all that. 
And the Lord's not waiting on one more blood moon. He's not waiting on one more missile. He's not, wor- he's not waiting on anything. He knows, the, the, the Father knows the time. We'll look at all that next week. He knows the time. Not even the Son knows. We definitely don't know. But when that time comes, we do get a little glimpse, a few of the highlights of what it'll look like. And so I'll just explain those. Jesus' response uh, in Mark 13 is that he starts with kind of the beginning of the birth pains, the beginning of tribulation, not necessarily the beginning of the seven years, but things are going to start getting worse, right? He talks about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all these kind of things. So there will be a beginning of those birth pains. Now, there's a few different schools of thought on when the rapture will take place. And I'm not going to say for absolute truth today when it will, because I don't think we can. I can say there's evidence it can happen before the tribulation, after the tribulation, right? But there will be a rapture, right? The trumpets will sound. There will be a resurrection. We'll meet him in the air. Okay, we know that's part of it. Then, there will be seven years of tribulation. It will be split into half. Three and a half years in the first half, three and a half years in the second half. If you read the book of Daniel, you'll see where he says, I love the language he uses. He, he says, time, times, and half a time. Well, time is one, times is two, and a half is a half. So one plus two is three, plus a half is three and a half. So there's your little uh, Daniel commentary, uh, just for fun, but uh, three and a half years. And so the first three and a half years, uh, there'll be this 144,000, there again, there's still different schools of thought, but Jewish evangelists still preaching the gospel. People will still be converted. And then at that midpoint is when we see this abomination of desolation, which we're going to spend more time talking about today, which was part of Jesus' answer, more defined in Daniel. But when, when he stands in the holy place where he doesn't belong, that's when it's time to run. That's it. And then for three and a half years, it'll be just the... Beyond our imagination, terrible. Death, blood up to the horse's bridles, the wrath of God being poured out. And then there will be this day of atonement or the second coming of Christ Jesus. There will be a millennial reign, thousand years of him reigning, Satan being bound up. There will be peace. Then... There will be this white throne judgment. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire along with the Antichrist. And then new heaven, new earth. Okay? I'm sure somebody can probably pick that apart and say I said something wrong or that could have been wrong or whatever. But those are the events that we know of. We don't know exactly the day, even exactly the order. But when we look out, that's those mountain peaks, right? That's what the Lord has shown us and that we can certainly expect. Now, in there, there will also be the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? Where we get to commune with Christ at the table, right? There will be the judgment seat of Christ, or that Bema seat, where 
for believers, they'll be rewarded for every good thing that was done. So, hopefully this kind of gives us a little better idea of what that looks like. Daniel, uh, when Jesus refers to the abomination of desolation, he's referring to what Daniel said in, in uh, chapter 9 and in chapter 11. I'll just read those verses so we can kind of get an idea of what he was referring to. Daniel 9, 27 says, He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half the week I shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed and is poured out on the desolator. Chapter 11 of Daniel. There's one more reference to the abomination of death, desolation. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So abomination is something that God abhors. Desolate means everybody's gone. So this will be that final abomination that will just desolate the temple. All right. So that's our history lesson to kind of get us in context with what Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 13. So we'll walk through Mark 13. The disciples point to the building, and Jesus says, it's not going to be here anymore. Then he goes to the Mount of Olives. That was just one disciple. Some people think it's Peter. We don't know for sure. Then he went to the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished. And what he says is, see that no one leads you astray. It's very easy to be led astray when it comes to end times prophecy. He warns them, don't, don't, don't let this happen. Many people will come in my name saying, I am he, right? People will come and say, I am Jesus. There'll be some who follow that. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. So the presence of war does not mean the trumpet is about to blow. That's to be expected in these beginning of birth pains. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, famines. But these are the beginning of the birth pains. Verse 9, be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness for them. Now, if we read through the book of Acts, we see this was the truth. Man, everywhere they went and preached the gospel, guess what they found? Persecution. Everywhere. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Everywhere he said they would go, they were persecuted. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Another verse that's often kind of misunderstood. Most commentators would agree that he's talking about the Roman nations, the Roman world. But we also know in the end, every knee will bow. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious. All right, so uh, they're going to want to kill you and they're going to persecute you. Hey, don't be anxious. How in the world is that possible? Say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Man, that Holy Spirit that dwells in us is capable of bringing about a kind of perseverance that is supernatural. 
Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father is child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Even from your family, it says, you can expect it. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is just assuring them, I'm going to take care of you. You're going to be taken care of. Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. It's going to be difficult, but endure to the end, and you'll be saved. Now, verse 14 transitions to the abomination of desolation. But, he says, but when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Remember, this is that halfway part of the tribulation. This is three and a half years in. When the abominable one stands in the holy place, there's also a reference where this had kind of taken place with Antiochus where he poured out some pig uh, fluid on the, on the altar. But more importantly, looking forward, when you see that, it's time to run. Now he says, let the reader understand. The only place in the Bible that says anything like this. And that's one of the reasons that I explained the whole history and future of the temple and the end times and stuff. Because he just says you need to understand this, right? He didn't take time to explain it. That's very important in, in how we receive what he said here. That, you and I are readers, right? He, he didn't speak audibly to us, but we're reading this. This is for us. This is as much for us as it was for them, which is kind of neat. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. If you're in Judea, flee. Go. Run. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. It's going to be more difficult for them. Pray that it might not happen in winter when it's raining and it's hard to travel. It's hard to get across the rivers. And the streams. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now never will be. And if the Lord had cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So he put a time period on it. He gave them instructions to flee so that they might be saved in this terrible three and a half years that was beginning. And if anyone says, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. One thing is for certain. When Jesus returns, there will be no question. But before that, many are going to claim to be him. That's another good reason we need to understand. We need to know what the Bible says. We need to do what the Bible says. So, what in the world do we do with all this information? <laughs> what does that mean for you and I today? What is this? How do we obey the passage at hand? There's a, a few truths that we can pull from here that would transform our hearts today. That would glorify Him. The first is this. 
we are often tempted to worship or idolize what has been created rather than the Creator. Paul talks about that in Romans 1. But it's part of Jesus' response here, right? They're looking at the temple. Look what we have done for you, Lord, right? Look at this beautiful place. And he says, it's not going to last. The world is filled with encouragement and opportunity for us to prioritize things that are not going to last. And to invest in them and to even to go as far as to worship them. Remember Ezekiel 8 where they turned their back on the temple and were worshiping the sun? Verse 24 says the sun and moon will even be gone. Imagine, hypothetically, if we just prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, look what we've done for you. Look at this building. Look at this thing. Man, it's beautiful. We're spending tens of thousands of dollars every month for this. I want you to see how good we've done. Would we pray like that? Absolutely not. Is it a bad thing to have a building? No. But it's not the object of our worship. It's not even our utmost priority. Nor is anything else that we can fashion with our hands. Back to those unhewn stones. i tell you what he is doing. What Anna was talking about. He's transforming lives through his people and through his word. That glorifies him. I think about little Camille was baptized last week. Man, he's giving her a new heart in Christ Jesus. He's bringing food to those who are hungry. He's caring for children who are in need. He's rescuing the lost. He's starting churches on an entirely different continent. We're tempted. We're very regularly tempted to idolize what we can create in our own strength and might. The second thing the passage reveals to us is really a common response to change, right? All of us, we're, we're wired a little different and different things make us anxious, but change, we always fear we might lose something, right? Or it might cost us something. So a common question, right? What does it look like? When's it going to happen? That's how they responded. And Christ's answer is just beautiful, right? Is that Holy Spirit will tell us what to stay. Give us what's necessary to persevere through whatever He's laid before us. And in the end, we have hope in Christ Jesus. This passage proves to us the worthiness of Scripture. Think about that. Verses 1 and 2. The temple, Jesus said, it's not going to be here anymore. Forty years later, it wasn't there anymore. The Bible is filled with fulfilled prophecy. About half of them have already been filled exactly like it said it would. What Jesus prophesied in verses 9, or verses 3 through 13, about persecution 
about the promise of the work of the Holy Spirit, exactly what happened. Read through the book of Acts. And because of that, we read from verse 14 through 23, we can expect that to happen exactly like Jesus said it was going to happen. This, this book is like no other, right? There's nothing else we can hold in our hands that will last forever. It's absolutely true. Whatever God said would happen that is supposed to have happened by now, happened exactly like he said it would happen. And because of that, we could put all of our hope and trust in Jesus. And we can have realistic expectations about the days to come. Both the good and the bad. We can trust it. Lastly, uh, thirdly, I've mentioned it already, but this really is not about the calendar. Beware of people who are trying to prove to you how much they know about end times prophecy by saying, when this happens, this will happen. Right? Things on earth I'm talking about. When certain things on earth happen or are happening, right? Be very, very careful. Stick with the, with the scriptures. He's the God who was and is and is to come. I love that language, right? Revelation 4, 8. Four living creatures camped around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The Father was, He is, and He is to come. The Son was, and He is, and He is to come. The Spirit was, and He is, and He is to come. From Genesis to Revelation. He's today, yesterday, and tomorrow. That's the way He communicates things. That's the way we should really kind of metabolize what He's telling us, right? We need to take all that in. We also, and I wish I had more time to talk about this, but this passage just reminds us of God's plan to exchange the shadow for the substance. The temple, friends, was just a shadow of what was to come. Those feasts in Leviticus 23 were just a shadow of what was to come. And those shadows that he gives us are always substantiated. Think about the temple. God was separated from man because of sin. There was a holy of holies. In the first temple, it was a, a wall where the ark was inside of it. The second temple, uh, Herod's temple, the one here, had a curtain. You remember that curtain that was torn in two when it was finished, when he drew his last breath? We'll look at that here in a week or two. See, man was separated from God. You know why? Because we've sinned. But God in his... Wonderful grace made a way through Jesus Christ for us to be reconciled to him. For those sins to be forgiven. Not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of our Savior. See, that temple was just a picture of what was coming. And Christ has made a way in such a way that no priest ever could at all was pointing towards him. Think about our bodies being the temple. The Feast of Tabernacles, right? Where there will be no temple other than the Lord and the Lamb. The sacrifices that were offered every year at that temple were just pointing us to Jesus. And he substantiated every one of those shadows. The Passover, right, would be substantiated in a couple of days here. 
feast of unleavened bread and of first fruits. And then the, the day of Pentecost, right? That feast of weeks was substantiated. All of these shadows are being substantiated. Which further builds our faith. So, now that we've covered all of eternity, part of Mark 13, how do we wrap all this up? God has and always has and always will have a plan to redeem his people. He's had a plan from the very beginning of how to redeem his people. There's a lot of things that pointed to it, forward and backwards. It's not by the work of man's hands. It's not by the blood of bulls and goats. But by the blood of the Lamb. The spotless Lamb of God. Jesus Christ. He left the tabernacle of heaven... He tabernacled among men, was crucified, buried, rose on the third day, ascended back to that heavenly tabernacle where he sits at the right hand of the Father today, interceding for you and I. This temple reminds us that God is holy and man is sinful. But he's made a way. When we couldn't get to him, he came to us. His name is Jesus. Trust him today and live forever. Let's pray. Father, we just love you. Thank you for your grace, for your great plan that we could never even come close to devising on our own. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the promise of Holy Spirit and perseverance. And thank you for your church. Lord, I pray today that if there's anyone here that's yet to trust in Christ. Lord, that you'd do something in their heart that would draw them to Jesus and that they would trust him and be born again and live forever. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand. Let the reader understand your glory, your glory and your grace and your word. Lord, I pray that you just continue to strive with us, Lord. To deliver us from temptation, Father. To care for us. I pray for our city once again, Lord. Just that you would just deliver your people that live right here among us. That you would use us, Lord, to, just to be a light. We pray it all in the matchless and the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.